You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The Budworm APT's bespoke tools, Johnson Controls sustains a cyber attack. The U.S. Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board reports on Section 702, the looming government shutdown and cyber risk. Cybersecurity in the U.S. industrial base, the platform formerly known as Twitter cuts back on content moderation capabilities. In our Industry Voices segment, Nicholas Kathman from LogicGate describes the struggle when facing low-cost attacks. Sam Crowther from Casada shares his team's findings on stolen auto accounts. And Ukrainian hacktivists target Russian airline check-in systems. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Thursday, September 28th, 2023. Symantec says that the Budworm APT, tracked by others as Emissary Panda or APT-27, in August 2023 used a new version of its sysupdate backdoor to target a Middle Eastern telecommunications organization and an Asian government. The researchers note, the targeting of a telecommunications company and government also point to the motivation behind the campaign being intelligence gathering, which is the motivation that generally drives budworm activity. That budworm continues to use a known malware, sysupdate, alongside techniques it is known to favor, such as DLL sideloading using an application it has used for this purpose before, indicate that the group isn't too concerned about having this activity associated with it if it is discovered. The report doesn't offer an attribution, but government and telecommunications organizations are common targets for cyber espionage. Building automation company Johnson Controls International has sustained a major ransomware attack that's affected the operations of several of the company's subsidiaries, Bleeping Computer reports. The attackers have encrypted the company's VMware servers and claim to have stolen more than 27 terabytes of corporate data, Bleeping Computer cites a source as saying that the attackers are demanding a $51 million ransom. Johnson Controls confirmed a cybersecurity incident in an 8K filing with the SEC and stated that they are actively evaluating the extent of the information that was compromised and are implementing their incident management and protection plan to address the incident's impact. While many of the company's applications are still functional, 
It has had to employ workarounds for certain operations to minimize disruptions and maintain customer service. The incident has resulted in disruptions to some of the company's business operations, and the disruption is anticipated to persist. A divided Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board has reported its recommendations concerning Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Section 702 has been controversial for what critics see as its potential for abusive surveillance of U.S. citizens. Intelligence and law enforcement agencies defend the law as an essential authority for collection, especially collection against terrorist organizations. The first seven recommendations in the report are calls for congressional action, codifying specifically the 12 legitimate objectives for signals intelligence collection under Executive Order 14086. They also recommend that Congress introduce more definition and clarity into Section 702, drawing sharper lines over what's permissible and what's impermissible. The remaining 12 recommendations concern procedures executive agencies might adopt. Most of these involve increased transparency and controls to ensure that querying in particular doesn't run afoul of protections against unreasonable search. It also includes calls for replacing manual review of material collected with new, secure, automated procedures. And the report also recommends that intelligence and law enforcement agencies improve their measurement of the outcomes of surveillance. Did they actually achieve operational goals beyond the collection itself? NextGov outlines the potential cybersecurity implications of a U.S. government shutdown, noting that around 80% of employees at CISA would be furloughed during a shutdown. Representative Chantel Brown, a Democrat of Ohio, compared the effects of a government shutdown to those of a ransomware attack, saying it would be dangerous, destructive, and disastrous. Brown added that a shutdown would undercut organizations and state and local governments that are relying on federal funds to prevent crippling ransomware attacks. Representative Nancy Mace, a Republican of South Carolina, countered that the White House could choose to designate CISA employees as essential workers in the event of a shutdown. So, if there is a shutdown, and that remains a big if, since there's always the possibility of an 11th-hour continuing resolution before federal fiscal New Year's Day on October 1st, there will be some degradation of federal services. Aprio has released the results of a survey looking at cybersecurity in the manufacturing industry, finding that nearly two-thirds of manufacturers experienced unauthorized access to their company's networks and data in the past year. The survey also found that fewer than half of companies surveyed report having a cybersecurity policy, and only 36% have enhanced IT security. Aprio adds, Manufacturers can leverage digital tools to achieve competitive advantage by sharing information across functions and with supply chain partners to improve productivity and respond in real time to operational problems. But most companies are not utilizing this. In fact, 39% of surveyed manufacturers are using 5G networks, and only 21% are using edge computing. X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, has disabled a feature for reporting election misinformation, Reuters reports. The information says... X has also cut half of its election integrity team, including the team's head, Aaron Rodericks. 
Ex-owner Elon Musk said in a post that the team was undermining election integrity. The Hill notes that X said last month that it was expanding its election safety team to focus on combating manipulation, surfacing inauthentic accounts, and closely monitoring the platform for emerging threats. Social media in general and X, formerly Twitter in particular, have been used to establish and amplify disinformation during elections. The U.S. elections in November 2024 are expected to receive a great deal of attention from foreign disinformation operators, especially Russian. Several Russian airlines warned customers to expect difficulties at the gates. Cyber News described the issue as a distributed denial-of-service attack. The IT Army of Ukraine, a cyber auxiliary group operated on behalf of Ukraine, claimed responsibility, stating, While you're sipping your artisanal latte, our noble neighbors to the north are stuck in queues trying to book flights. Well done, IT Army. The attack was over in a matter of hours, and service is now said to be returning to normal. Coming up after the break, Nicholas Kaufman from LogicGate describes the struggle when facing low-cost attacks. Sam Crowther from Casada shares his team's findings on stolen auto accounts. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com.
attackers enjoy the advantage of inexpensive, readily available tools to help them do their deeds, which means a relatively low investment for them, but a steady barrage of things to deal with for defenders. In this sponsored Industry Voices segment, I speak with Nicholas Kathman, CISO of risk and compliance management platform provider LogicGate, on the struggles organizations face with low-cost attacks. So phishing attempts is, is a prime example of this. It costs next to nothing, or in many cases free, to send a phishing, uh, you know, a phishing email. But the companies, the victims, are spending a lot of money on anti-phishing technology and you know, different types, different email filtering to, uh, capabilities and user awareness training to tr- try to protect against that free attack. And how do we differentiate between something that is merely a nuisance and something that is truly potentially dangerous? I mean, I would say if you design your systems correctly, and you, you know, I, I call it embrace the incident, you're going to have incidents. Things are going to get through. If you're, you know, your systems are designed properly, your security architecture is designed properly, IAM roles are designed properly, almost anything becomes a nuisance. So if you don't have all that stuff in case, so you know, we used to call it the Cadbury effect a long time ago. Uh, I think there's a different term for it now, but the hard shell GUI center. Once you get into an organization, everything's just wide open and unlocked. Every you know, successful phishing attempt turns into a major incident or a major issue. Whereas if everything's properly locked down, you're using MFA, you're using you know, device trust, you, know, you have your admin accounts separated from your normal user accounts, you know, things like that. You, you have different uh, you know, trust boundaries around different applications, and you, you, you know, you've embraced more of the zero trust type of architecture approach. Somebody simply getting a you know the username and password for your system, or even a username and password and an MFA token, the damage you know the blast radius is much smaller, and that really just becomes a nuisance at that point. You're just resetting passwords and tokens. Well, let, let's come at it from the other direction then. I mean, what are your recommendations for folks to best come at this? What are some of the strategies you think folks should put in place? So I think a lot of it would start with really just going through attack simulations. So what would happen if this did happen? And kind of, you know, almost tabletop it, but do more of a realistic tabletop. So a phishing attempt uh, happened against a finance user. Okay, so you can either, you know, have your security team or your IT team or somebody knowledgeable within there created as a finance user and now go look around and see what they have access to. What can they actually do? Or you can pay pen test firms to do this for you as well. And really just figure out, you know, what what do they have access to that they shouldn't have had access to and start to restrict these things down. Um, and then go to the next scenario and just keep working down the list of scenarios of different attack types that can be used against you. And then just, you know, systematically destroy the, you know, it's it's in the in risk you can go through and you can, you know, reduce the risk of it happening or reduce 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 the likelihood, or you can reduce the impact. My what I would say here is what I recommend here is use the free technology, the free mechanisms, the free security controls built into you know your office suite, your um, file sharing suite, your else like that to reduce the impact as much as humanly possible. Yeah, can we dig into that a little bit? I mean, how do you recommend that folks set their priorities here? Everybody has a limited amount of time and a limited amount of resources. What's a, a wise way for folks to calibrate? how they come at this specific problem. Uh, So a big thing is just getting security involved. 
early on in the project or any project that's coming up. So once, you know, I, I always said if you if you bring in a security architect after the solution is already created, now the security architect's coming in, you know, proverbially calling the baby ugly. It's already there. There, there's already a timeline. It's usually like, you know, you get the call for a half an hour meeting to approve a solution, you know, a week before it's, it's set to go live. Um, this is this is where all the mistakes happen. If you bring in security architecture, if you bring in the security and compliance and privacy teams from the very beginning, before you know, during project inception, we're going to roll out new application X Y Z, but we don't know what that looks like yet. We don't have any diagrams. We haven't written any code. That's when you can really start to get ahead of the problems before they become problems. And then, so, really, it's just getting ahead. Making sure that from the very beginning, security, compliance, privacy are all stakeholders at the table and can start bringing in the requirements and making sure that you know, everybody who the implementers of the technology and the application owners and the, 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 all of the stakeholders understand really what's required so they can keep that in mind and be educated uh, throughout the entire project lifecycle. What about communications with the powers that be? You know, think folks like the board of directors, you know, making sure that they're informed and on board with the plans here. Yep. So I mean this is really this this is going to be where setting clear clear guidelines, clear, you know, goalposts for the different application and owners is going to be really important. So every everybody's seen organizations where there's I call it the paper tiger. There's policies and procedures that the compliance team knows inside and out and that they use to pass, you know, attestations and compliance things. But if you ask any of the end users, even if they've read, you know, signed off that they follow those policies, they probably can't state more than one control. So this is really, you know, making sure that when you're designing these policies, these procedures, these standards, these um, guidelines, that you do have, you know, technical stakeholders reviewing it. You do have leadership reviewing it as well, so that by the time you go to get it approved, everybody's aware of every line that's in there, and that it's not, and that you know, people understand what the requirements are. And they've seen it and they know exactly where to get that, you know, that standard or that guideline that says this is what we should be doing. Um, that's the first step is just making sure that you're socializing all of your policies, all of your standards, you know, in advance, far in advance of actually making them, um, you know, final and in, 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 in proofs. But then once you're there, that becomes the guideline and just making sure that you have a way to measure projects and, you know, different applications against that guideline. And anytime they're they're not meeting that guideline, that becomes findings. It goes into a risk register, and then that goes up into the summary reports that you're bringing up to the board in terms of this department and you know their projects, their applications uh, have introduced these amount of risks for not meeting the standards, um, and then let you know let it from there. They make the decision of do we accept this or do we go back and say no, you need to fix this. That's Nicholas Kathman, Chief Information Security Officer at LogicGate. management firm Casada recently published a report outlining their discovery of nearly 15,000 stolen automotive customer accounts for sale online, with credentials being sold for as little as $2 on Telegram. Sam Crowther is CEO at Casada. Our threat research team found evidence that some criminal syndicates had been launching credential stuffing attacks against large 
particularly US-based auto manufacturers, and selling the compromised accounts, which, you know, contained obviously the VIN numbers, the makes and models of the vehicles, the PII of, of the owners uh, within, within some of their Telegram communities. And it was at a scale that was quite alarming to go from zero to, to where they, where they landed. So it, it raised just massive red flags on our side. And we figured this is absolutely something we need to talk more about. Well, what kind of scale are we talking about here? How many uh, stolen accounts did you all track? So the initial two waves, there was about 15,000 US accounts for these cars that came up for sale. Well, let's talk about the, the information that was taken here and, and why it matters for folks. I mean, I think people are kind of used to getting reports that some of their information has been compromised, you know, their name, their address, maybe something like that. But I think it's fair to say most of us don't think about things like the the VINs of our cars. I completely agree, right? And like when you buy a car from a manufacturer, particularly modern ones, and you sign up for the account to manage your servicing or even, you know, manage the vehicle remotely, you never really think too much about what's going into it and, and the sort of access and information that it has. Well, let's talk about some of the things that folks can do with a VIN here. What are the risks? Something known as car cloning, where criminals can take stolen VIN numbers and use it to create replica tags so that, you know, you may get pulled over when you're driving your car in, you know, Maryland, right? And the police are like, hey, we've, you know, we've got a warrant for this or whatever it is when uh, you get pulled over. And it's actually because someone else who committed a crime who's duped your car's information has done it, you know, you know, somewhere else in the state, right? Which is really, really problematic. There's also the potential for uh, basically the duplication of ownership papers. So someone could own your car from the government's eyes. It's pretty concerning. And when you couple that with the information around where the individuals live, how to contact them, it can start to start to become, you know, a really scary form of identity fraud. Hmm. How so? How would folks uh, use this information specifically? You can leverage all the you know, contact and VIN information. It's also possible to like, take out loans, for example, against the car, like additional you know, cash out, which I guess is like the ultimate goal for almost any you know, identity theft, right, is, is, is money from the banks that's tied to someone else. What's really interesting, though, on the actual like seller's side is how popular and how cheap seemingly these accounts were, right? Like normally to get your hands on enough information to, to properly commit identity fraud, you know, it's going to cost you 500 to 1000 bucks. whereas you look at some of these automotive accounts and you can pay as little as $2 and you basically have all the information you need to get started. What are your recommendations for folks to protect themselves against this sort of thing? So, look, the number one would be, and I know it's said over and over again, but unique passwords, particularly on systems like this. I know it's probably not something many of us think about being overly sensitive, but the reality is it's actually quite important for us to protect it. So making sure that you know access to that account is you know 2FA where it can be, it's a strong password, and then you know, if you can disable certain functionality or you can avoid having some of these accounts entirely, maybe 
if it's not going to, you know, impede your user experience, it may be best to do so, right? In a lot of cases, most people don't need these accounts. Most of the cars attached to these were old from what we could see, and there was no app to control them remotely for these older models. So there was really no big value add, yet they'd sort of been, you know, driven to sign up by the manufacturer. Is there any responsibility from the car manufacturers here? I mean, have have they chimed in on, on any of their attempts to secure this kind of thing? A huge responsibility, right? Like, this is ultimately their problem. If this happened in any other industry where the information was as sensitive, there would be outrage. Like, imagine if, you know, the, the MyChart accounts you have for your medical information had the same problem. Like, the impact would be pretty material. And functionally, this is very sensitive PII. So we've reached out and tried to notify the manufacturers. One has engaged. The others have remained silent. Um, The one that's Hmm. engaged has been really good and proactive about actually, you know, properly digging in and looking at what went wrong and and how to address it, which is great to see. Yeah. Where do you suppose we're headed here? I mean, could you see uh, regulations coming that could help tie these sorts of things down better? General security, you know, rules and and regulations around liability is something that will help here, right? You know, the the world is so fast-paced, and and particularly if you take the case of auto manufacturers who've been ripped out of the Stone Age very, very quickly, there's just so many different unique cases and data sets and data types to deal with. But, you know, laws around, hey, what is acceptable for an organization to lose when it comes to customer data, Right. How many accounts can be compromised before there are some, you know, whether it's like criminal or other sorts of charges brought against the company? Um, that's really where this needs to go. And if you look at other countries, they're starting to move there, right? Like actually, you know, my home country of Australia has recently implemented some new laws around liability if organizations are shown to, to be negligent. And the penalties are really severe, right? Similar to what you'd see in the European Union. And I really think that's the best way to do it because right now the equation these companies make is what's the chance we get caught how much is it going to cost us if we get caught you know we're fine to accept that risk without actually really considering what the impact to the their customers is that's sam crowther from casada Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. 
we're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.